All right, we are in a series of teachings called Follower. And uh, if you are new here, I'll bring you up to speed just a little bit. And the main idea was this. We have a lot of ideas, especially in our culture today, of what it means to be a Christian, um, what it means to be religious, uh, to go to church, all of those things. But at the heart of it, it can, you know, it can get skewed to mean anything socially, politically, just you know, go to church, good behavior, try to get to heaven, all those things. At the heart of it, follower means you follow someone. So I was using this as an example last week. When you are going somewhere, you know, especially pre-GPS days when you would need to go somewhere and someone would be driving who says, I know where to go, just follow me. You learn quickly who's a good follower and who's not. Those who straggle behind, like three red lights behind. If you're the leader and you're going through a yellow light, you're the follower, you're, you're running that light, right? You're not waiting to everybody wait. You're like, I'm going. That's a good follower when you're following someone who knows where they're going. At the heart of our faith... A Christian is someone who studies the teachings of Jesus and follows them, who closely studies the teachings and examples of Jesus and follows them. So when Jesus says, follow me, we saw it in the disciples, week one of this series. The disciples, before they were called by Jesus, they were fishermen, and they, that was their way of life. And they had just got done fishing, and they were cleaning all their nets and other gear and, and getting ready to be done for the day. And Jesus said, come follow me. And they put down all their gear, they put down their fishing nets, and they actually literally went and followed. That, the putting down of the fishing nets was symbolic of, I'm done with the old life, and I'm going to follow you and take those steps. Now, this was not um, for them an addition of like, well, Jesus, you know, similar to what we would think today a follower is, is a supporter or a fan or an observer. The disciples didn't do that. It was not a, well, Jesus, we're going to keep an eye on you, best wishes as you go and change the world. It was a following. This was not an addition of faith to their life, but it was a regime change as far as who they are living for. They let down the old way of life, and they said, Jesus, we are now living for you. You are first. We, I've seen some, you've seen the bumper stickers, God is my co-pilot. That's, that's not the right way to do it, right? If God is your co-pilot, that's not how it works. God's not looking for, for an opportunity to kind of be, your, be the goose to your maverick, so to speak. Sorry, that's a way old reference. I think they're remaking that movie, though, so youngsters, you'll understand. Well, Goose won't be there, you know. R.I.P. Goose. Spoiler, Goose dies in Top Gun. So if you haven't seen Top Gun, you're 30 years too late, but Goose doesn't make it. Sorry, sidetrack. Jesus is not your co-pilot, right? Jesus is not your co-pilot because if you are running, and we love to put faith in those terms. I want to live for me. I know what's best for me, but I'm going to have Jesus with me to get me out of a jam, to give me encouragement, to provide things when I need it. If I you know, run into a trouble, he's going to get me out of a jam. That's not how it works because eventually... You're going to be leading yourself down a path, and Jesus is going to say, i got a different path for you. And in those moments, you're going to find out, who are you really following? Who are you really following? That's why we study the scriptures. We see the teachings of Jesus, and we see him teach things that we say, oh, I don't like to do that. I'd rather do this. And those moments, you find out who it is that is in charge of your life. And when we say that we're a follower of Jesus, we're saying, Jesus, you're in charge. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to lay down my life. I'm not going to be the one leading and guiding anymore. And so I've said this every week. 
The decision is yours whether or not you want to be a follower of Jesus, but what we want to do in this series is at least make sure that we all know what we're talking about when we're talking about being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus. Because in those moments where the path veers and Jesus is saying, I want to go this way, and we're saying, no, 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 I know best for my life, I want to go this way, those are the moments when we discover who's in charge. Those are foundational moments. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16 today. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to look at verse 24 of Matthew chapter 16. We're going to actually be in a couple different gospels, a couple different passages of Scripture today. If you want a Bible, there's a black card cover Bible in the pew that you're sitting in. Otherwise, they'll be up on the screen. Um, I encourage you even just to write this down, and this week, if you're looking for something in the Bible to read, read these chapters, read these stories again. This is when Jesus is becoming more well-known. He's got his disciples. They're following him, and everywhere he goes, there's a crowd of people. So the disciples are starting to feel like, yes, this is, we're kind of going to be big deals. Like, Jesus is awesome. He's super famous, and we're like his inside guys. Like, we're, we're going to be well-known just because Jesus is well-known. And so I'm going to read um, some verses from Matthew 16. We're going to read verse 24 and 25. And this is the heart of the message today. This really is the heart of following Jesus. In Matthew 16, 24 and 25, it says this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple or follower must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. This is the central idea of following Jesus, is denying yourself or dying to yourself. Maybe you've heard that mentioned in church or somewhere else before. Die to yourself, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow. And I've learned that that right there is the key to my relationship with God. That's, I've learned that. That is central to my relationship with God, my devotion to God, my relationship with God, it hinges on my, my ability to put down myself, to lay that down, and to follow him, to deny myself, to take up my cross, and follow him. It's almost like, well, we, it, really, it really is, you have yourself in charge, yourself rules and reigns, and then you have to, like, break up with yourself, okay? So put it in those terms. you got to break up with yourself and say, sorry, self, I found somebody new, you know, I found somebody new. Um, and breaking up with yourself is not very easy to do, if you've ever tried, right? Um, in high school, I was uh, your typical kind of invisible high school. I was in the band, right? I was not on the football team, which might be shocking to some of you just looking at me. All that natural ability. No, I was in the band. Um, and I just kind of kept to myself. I was, I was, I'm a pastor's kid. I had a lot of great friends in my youth group and in my church. I was really involved in church, but I wasn't really involved in high school. If there was a, whatever it would be now, a 30-year reunion coming up, um, and I don't show up because I haven't been to any because it's in Calgary, nobody is going to be thinking, where's that Jeff Kerr? Where's that one guy? Nobody would remember. I would show up and be like, they would be like, I don't remember you at all in high school. I was one of those kids. I was in the band. I played the trombone. Um, all all leading to the thought that I was really a ladies' man. No, I was not. I was not at all. But there was a day in the band. Actually, we were on a band trip. So we were in Calgary, and our band took a trip to Los Angeles. So we played a few concerts in L.A. It was super fun, fun for us to go see L.A. Well, like day two of this trip, um, 
I noticed one of the one of the cute girls from the clarinet section was kind of smiling at me and looking at me, and I'm like, you know, do the. This didn't, just doesn't happen to me very often. I was so I started talking to her, and she was smiling and talking to me, and I was like, we might be, I might be flirting with the cute clarinet girl. Like she was really cute, and so we started talking and hanging out. It's this, you know, it's a band trip. We're in California. We're just like, this is great. And then day three, she kissed me, and I was like. Oh, like this is this is brand new information. Now this is, this doesn't happen to me very often, right? So, me and cute clarinet girl just had a wonderful time. This was great, I, and I knew in my head, I'm like, well, I know she's obviously not a Christian, <laughs> just by the way she talks, and but she was so cute, right? And she was interested in me, and so we had a great time in California. It was wonderful, but then the second to last day of the trip, she came up to me and she was concerned. And uh, do you have any idea what her concern would be? Because I had no idea. She said, well, I'm just concerned what's going to happen to us after this trip's over. Are we going to go back to school and it's going to be different? And honestly, that was the first time I had thought about anything after this trip to California. But of course, typical guys like, oh, no, we're, we're in it to win it. We're going to be together. For, I didn't say that. We're going to be together. So we, after we got home from this band trip, we tried to make this relationship with work. I was dating the cute clarinet girl. Now, if you grew up as a Christian in the 1980s, the worst thing you could do, what they would tell you, the worst thing you could do other than listening to secular music or going to PG-13 movies was dating a non-Christian. Like that in youth group, it was like, oh, and so word got out, Jeff's dating a non-Christian. Now, what happened with cute clarinet girl and I is we would hang out at school during the week. We really had very little in common. Um, and then on the weekends, our youth group was on Friday night. So I'd go do church stuff, hang out with my friends all weekend. She'd go hang out with her friends at parties and drink. And, and then we'd come back and we'd see each other Monday at school. And, uh, and we'd talk about our weekends, which were very different. Um, and so eventually, you know, I knew that, you know, God at that time in my life was stirring my heart. He was challenging me to live for him. He was challenging me in all these things. I was growing in my faith. He was challenging me, and all these things we're reading today. I knew cute clarinet girl, and I had no future. It just wasn't, and eventually I just had to say, God, you know what? You're right. You're right. I'm going to choose your way over my way. And so, sadly, cute clarinet girl and I broke up. Now, don't feel sad for cute clarinet girl, because she moved on really quickly. <laughs> she... <laughs> There's only so much damage being dumped by me can inflict, because she was like, fine. And I think pretty sure by the next day she was dating a guy from the football team, and I'm pretty sure he had a beard um, in the 11th grade, <laughs> which I did not have. So cute clarinet girl and I broke up, and she moved on quickly. But now we're talking about breaking up with ourself, denying ourself. Breaking up with ourself is not easy. It's not as easy. Self does not move on quickly. It's not a one-time decision. Self does not move on. Self is always enticing you to come back. Self is always tempting you, convincing you to put yourself first again because that feels good. It's fun to put yourself first. Self comes in motives and desires and temptations and ego and pride and insecurities all crying out for you and saying, hey, remember when we were together? That was awesome. Put me first again. Right? Self does not move on. Self is saying, put me first, because if you don't put me first, who's going to, right? 
This is the relationship we have with self. We try to lay it down. We try to leave it there like the disciples left those fishing nets. Only self does not stay on the shore. Self follows us and says, put me first again. Remember me. Remember how much fun we had when you were living just for self. So this leads, I want to read this kind of the, or highlight a couple of things in the rest of this story in Matthew 16. The verses leading up to when Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves or die to themselves take up their cross and follow me. This was when people were starting, like I said, people were starting to notice Jesus. They were following him. He had crowds all around him. And so one time he's with his disciples and it's just them. And he says, who do people say I am? And the disciples say, well, some of these people think you're, you know, Moses who's come back or Elijah or a great prophet. And then he says to the disciples, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, I know who you are. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. This was a bold statement of faith from Peter. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, yes, you're right. And because of this, you're going to be the center of a church upon this rock. Upon your faith, Peter, I'm going to build my kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail. This is like big, huge moment. Peter had to be thinking, yes, I got the answer right. And yes, look at what's going to happen. Not only are we Jesus's inside guys, but he's going to establish his kingdom. And that meant like military triumph in Peter's mind. And we're going to be like number two in charge and we're going to rule this place. You know, that's what Peter was thinking. And right after that happens, so the emotions are super high. Everyone's excited about what's going to happen. And in that moment, right then, Jesus starts talking about what's going to happen next. And all the disciples are thinking, well, sure, we're going we're gonna to get an army together. We're going to overthrow Rome. We're going to take over. You're going to be the king. We're going to be your sidekicks. And Jesus starts saying, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be persecuted, and we're going to suffer, and I'm going to be beaten, arrested, and crucified. This is what Jesus starts talking about. And the disciples have got to be thinking, this guy's a downer. No, 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 we're not going to do that. Don't talk about that. We're like supercharged up right now. So Peter goes to Jesus in verse 22, leading up to the verses that I read. Verse 22 says this, Peter took him aside, took Jesus aside, and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Peter's saying that, no, 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 this is military triumph. This is rule and reign. Don't talk about suffering. Don't talk about dying. And in verse 23, it says this. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So the good feelings they all had a few minutes ago are now gone. Peter has rebuked Jesus Jesus has called Peter Satan, and uh, everyone's got to be feeling pretty awkward, right? Now, this is not a moment, you know, when, I'll just say for boys, when we were younger and you're in an argument, you just try to think of the worst insult you can call the person. Oh, yeah, well, you're this. Oh, yeah, well, you're, and you, you know, name a bodily function or something, and you're just like, that's what you are. This was not Jesus trying to think of the worst thing he could call Peter. Oh, yeah, Peter, well, you're Satan. And, you know, record scratch moment, everyone's like, you did not say that. No, this is not what was happening. This was a moment where the temptation to follow self had been brought into the picture. Jesus had brought uh, his disciples together. Peter had brought this idea of, no, no, Jesus, you don't need to suffer. That's not going to happen to you. You're a mighty king. You're the Messiah. That's not going to happen to you. And in that moment, I believe Jesus felt that temptation to put himself first. He doesn't want to go to the cross. He doesn't want to do those things. And in that moment, he recognized the temptation to pick up self right? 
And that is why it's no longer a conversation between him and Peter. It's a conversation of Jesus and temptation. Get behind me, Satan. I'm not going to fall for this temptation. I'm not going to fall for you trying to lead me away from the path that God has for me, even though it's going to be difficult. Even though myself would say, well, choose this easier path. Get behind me, Satan, because you don't have in mind the things of man, you, or you don't have in mind the things of God. You only have in mind the things of self, the path that is pleasing to self. And that's what leads to verse 24 when Jesus says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And I think those words were both instructions to the disciples and also a reminder for Jesus to himself. It's not about self. It's not about the easy road. It's take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. In those moments where we have that choice, that is the discipline of our faith. That's the discipline of following Jesus, right? That's the discipline when you're enticed to put self first, who you will follow, because you can only follow one. You can only follow yourself or Jesus. You can't do both. So dying to yourself is how followers connect with Jesus. Jesus says it right out there. As we're looking at what it means to be a follower, he says, if you want to be a follower, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So small moments and big moments. Christie's preached a message like this before where she talks about the muscle, the the discipline muscle of in little things, you exercise self-control in little things. That's when you are learning in small ways to put yourself second, to do the right thing, to follow Jesus. Because if you can exercise that muscle enough times, it becomes automatic to not just think about yourself first, but to think about the path that God would want. So that when you are faced with the big decisions, the big temptations, the big areas of compromise, it becomes more habitual for you to say, no, I deny myself, I follow Jesus, I take up my cross and follow him. I want us all to exercise that muscle of discipline, of dying to yourself, even in the little things this week. Find yourself saying in your mind, nope, I'm going to die to myself. I'm not going to think about myself first. I'm going to follow what God wants for my life. Amen? All right. Dying to self is how we connect with Jesus. Now, the second thing I want to talk about is this, because dying to self also affects all our other relationships, doesn't it, right? And this is where it might get a little more difficult to know, go through this idea of putting ourselves second. Dying to self is how we connect with Jesus, and dying to self is how followers of Jesus connect with others, with everybody else, with all our relationships. When we face conflict, whether it's in a marriage, in a family, in a work environment, at school, between one group of people and another group of people, all conflict boils down to this. It's the source of all conflict. We live for self. We want to put us first. And then we encounter somebody else that has the nerve to not live for me too. They're living for themselves too. I'm living for me. They're living for them. And what we want is two different things. Well, now there's conflict. Now there's conflict. How are we going to resolve this, right? I'm worried about me, and you're not, apparently. Kids are born with this. We see it at an extremely young age. Everything's happy until something happens that they don't like. I'm not being fed. I'm, that's not okay with me right now. I'm hungry now. I want attention now. You took that toy away from me, and I wanted it. Conflict, right? And it just goes from there. We, we, it's a hard thing to grow out of, isn't it? You know, I, I saw this the other day. Now, I'll just give this hypothetical, even though it happens often. You're at a grocery store. Say you're at Cub Foods, 
And it's a time of day where they've only got one line open. So there's like six people in line, and there's one line open. So I've got my few things, and I'm like fourth in line. There's two people behind me or however many people are behind me. You know what's going to happen, right? And I know what's going to happen in that moment. Somebody's going to come up and say, I'm open, I'm open here on line two. And then everyone in line has this, who gets to go first? Nobody stops and thinks about it. In, my, who, in your mind, okay, who should be the one to go over to the new line? The person who's, up, who's been waiting the longest, right? So I always give the... I'm not looking for the guy behind me because he's got no right to line two. He's got no right to that open line. But show enough, he's the guy who just, just walked in for four seconds is like, hey, boom, and he's there. He's the quickest one to the line. And I'm the one to say, no, I don't say it, because I'm Minnesotan and Canadian, very passive aggressive. I'm in my head, I'm like, well, that's wrong. Like the very fabric of our world is being torn apart at the seams right now because you did not follow the obvious, you know, and, and so I get annoyed, I get frustrated, anybody else. We can find those moments, whether it's driving or, or we're watching on TV or somebody's saying something or in the grocery store, and we get those moments where we're frustrated, like, why are you being so selfish? And then I realize, you know why it bugs me? Because I'm selfish too, right? Your selfishness has inconvenienced myself, what I want. And now I am upset because I'm thinking about me and you're thinking about you and now we have conflict. And so we start fighting in cub foods. No, we don't do that. We just share glances like, yeah, I know what you did. And God knows what you did too. <laughs> we get really good at pointing out selfish behavior in others because it bothers us. And we get really good at justifying our selfish behavior because it's self, it's me, it's fine. We're just adept at justifying our selfishness. We're good at it because it's what I want, and that's what we're all here for, right? What I want. We have a very self-focused world. If, you have a, if you're in your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 10, the next gospel over Mark chapter 10. Now, the backstory here is about the same time in Jesus' ministry where they're getting noticed. There's crowds around. The disciples start, um, they start clamoring for position, they want to be like the best of the disciples. So there's a story where James and John, two of the disciples, they go to Jesus and they say, hey, when you come into your kingdom, we'd like to be on your right and left, signifying we want to be like the number two in charge. We want to be, of all these disciples, we want to be kind of your favorites, right? We want to be at your right and your left when you enter your kingdom. Well, the other disciples find out about this. They hear about this. So they get angry. Why should they get special treatment? Again, everyone's thinking self. And so this is where the story in Mark chapter 10 picks up. Mark chapter 10, I'm going to read verse 42 through 45. So this is when all the disciples are kind of mad at each other. They're clamoring for position. There's tension there. It says this in verse 42. Jesus called them together, the disciples, and he said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. So I'm going to pause there just for a second. Jesus is saying, you know how it works in the world. If you have authority, you lord it over people. If you can gain status and achievement, you gain it, and then you exploit those who are under you. This is what Jesus is saying, and he's saying, it's how the world works. I get it. But then he says these words in verse 43, which change everything. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave or servant of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is saying to his followers, 
which if we're a follower, this applies to us. He's saying the world works like this. Everyone's trying to get ahead and get ahead of other people and find ways that they can use that for their advantage. Okay, this was the culture that was the norm in that time. The disciples would have been used to that. That's how they would have thought. And Jesus says to the followers, not so with you. You don't do that. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, you don't do that. This was a new teaching. This was countercultural in that world. This was Jesus saying, we don't lord position over people. This was more than just Jesus telling his disciples, why can't you guys get along? Just be friends. No, he was introducing a teaching to the world that it had never heard before. Now, in that culture, it really was. Everything was about where you ranked, your position, your authority, your status, your wealth, your privilege, all of those things. That was what that society was about. If you outranked somebody, you knew it, and you could exploit it, and everybody was out for themselves. And so the disciples were just doing what was normal and expected. Now, that culture was a long time ago where that was the case. And I know our culture today is so different than that, right? Try to imagine, if you would, a culture where everyone is only out for themselves. Okay, just imagine. You know, just imagine that for a moment. Where everyone was trying to gain status or achievement or power or rank. Trying to gain approval so that they could lord that over other people. Can you even imagine what it would be like to live in a world like that? None of you are laughing. You're like, is he kidding? I am kidding. Because it's not that hard to imagine, right, in our world. That's the way we are, too, in this culture. Everybody is for themselves. Self is the ultimate God in our culture, right? It's the ultimate God. That's what everybody lives for. That's why there's conflict, because everyone has themselves as the Lord of their life. And everything else is a means to appease this God. Money, status, power, fame, comfort, victory, beauty, all for self. I want myself to be exalted. And then you have other, if you can find a way to exalt yourself over somebody else, then you do that. And you can say, well, I outrank you. I can exploit that. I have more value or whatever. This is how our culture works. Self-expression, self-esteem, self-identity. This is all such a hot-button issue in our world today because it is all about self. If you want it, go get it. If you want to do it, do it. You're the boss of you, and nobody can tell you what to do. This is... For any message about living for somebody else, this is the main obstacle we face. People are saying, I'm the boss of me. I live for myself. Don't tell me how to live. Don't tell me what to do with my body. Don't tell me what to do with my sexuality, with my desires, with my relationships with others, how I view women, how I view the opposite sex. Don't tell me what to do with my faith. This is such a huge obstacle in the Christian world because we're so prone to taking faith in God and just making it about ourselves, right? I want you, God, to get me out of a jam. I want my faith to just be an expression of getting more for myself or feeling better about myself or finding ways for myself to be blessed. Don't tell me what I can and can't do. I live for me. The God of self demands that we find others to exploit for our benefit. How can we get what we want from others? And so much more is Jesus' words more valuable today in our culture. How much are those words that Jesus just taught in Mark chapter 10, how much are those countercultural to what we live in every day, right? How much is that countercultural to the society we live in? When Jesus says, don't seek to elevate yourself, but rather deny yourself, prefer others, Serve others. Take up your cross by serving 
others. Consider others more important than you. Consider the guy, three, line, three people behind you who went to the open line in lane two more important than you. Man, that's going to be tough, right? Some of you are just like, oh, I don't know, because there's people that really bug me. That's the point. This is everything in our relationships. Any relationship. Every relationship. It is this, what Jesus is teaching. Not so with you. Don't look how you can exploit others or get ahead of others. Serve others. Prefer others. Love others. This is every relationship. This is in our family, in our marriages. Students, this is your relationships with friends at school. Bosses and employees, if you're in authority or under authority, Jesus is saying this is not a situation where if you're the boss, you get to just push people around and exploit them to get what you want. This is you serve. Now, every, we live in a world where there's bosses and there's employees. There's authority and those under authority. And that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, just get rid of all that and anarchy and everything like that. What he's saying is, if you're the boss, you say, I'm in charge of these people. How can I serve them to cause them to flourish? If you're under authority, you're saying, I'm not going to hate my boss. I'm going to serve that person to help them flourish. I'm going to prefer them. In a marriage, okay, marriage works when husband and wife view their spouse like that. I'm going to prefer them. I'm going to die to myself and prefer them. If both people do it, marriage works right? If both people are doing that saying, honey, I'm going to prefer you and put what you want first, and they are saying the same thing for you, marriage works because both parties are getting their needs and desires met. It's just somebody else that is focused on those. Now, if only one person is doing that in a marriage, well, then that person typically gets walked all over and taken advantage of, and that's heartbreaking. And if nobody does that in a marriage, well, then there's conflict, because it's all about, well, I'll, I want this, so maybe I'll give you that as long as I get this. Or maybe I'll do this for you, but I'm making sure that I get ahead first. It's, I've heard, uh, I've been a part of a lot of weddings, and there's a lot of people that talk about marriage being give and take. Give and take. Well, you give and you take, and you give and you take. That's not what marriage is about. That's not a healthy marriage. A marriage is give and give. You give and you give. And they give and give. And if we have the mentality as followers of Jesus, what Jesus is saying, if you want to be my follower, you have this mentality, you die to yourself and you put others first, marriages will flourish. Families will flourish. Relationships with your kids will flourish. Parents and kids, same thing. How can I serve them to cause them to flourish, to cause them to grow, to cause them to be the followers of Christ that Jesus wants them to be? It's every relationship. Bosses, teachers, teachers, students. How can you serve your teachers and cause them to be flourishing, right? How can you put them first? By doing your homework on time is how you do it, right? No. We have this mentality in every relationship. This is everything. It's how followers of Jesus relate to the world. Amen? And it is revolutionary. The same way that Jesus' words in Mark chapter 10 were revolutionary then, they are now this idea of putting others first, considering others more important than me, dying to myself when every desire in me is saying, I'm putting myself first, to lay that down and to serve others. It is a revolutionary countercultural idea. And that's the way that our message of hope is going to spread. Something like that is going to cause our world to be like, whoa, I've never seen that before. 
Why are they doing that? We can say it's because that's what Jesus did for us, because he did that for us. He modeled that. He didn't just preach it in Mark and in Matthew. He modeled it. There's a verse in John 12, verse 24, and I'm going to read this as I close. John 12, 24 says this, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus is putting things in priority there. He's reiterating this idea of die to yourself. Don't be so concerned with self. Now, Jesus is preaching and teaching when he talked about that. Unless a kernel of wheat dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. He's doing a couple of things there. He's saying, well, that's what's going to happen to me. He's foreshadowing his death and resurrection. His death when he died and resurrection, which changed the world. But he's also telling his followers, his disciples, this is how you live. Follow this example. He denied himself. He took up his cross. He laid down his life for you and me. And so that's what we do. We know that for us, you know, thinking about heaven, death must come first before we experience eternal life in heaven. But also what Jesus is saying is this. Think about a kernel of wheat or a seed from a tree or fruit from a tree. It must die and fall. And that is when it can multiply. That is when it can bear much fruit. That is when one seed can become many seeds. So for us, like that seed that must die to bear fruit, when we die to self, that's when God steps in. When we die to ourselves and put ourselves down, that's when God steps in and causes our relationships to flourish. That's when God steps in and says, I can do something with that humble heart. And he fills us with love. He fills us with calling, with identity, with value that's found in him and not what we can achieve for ourselves. When we lay ourselves down, that is when we become fully alive and our lives can bear fruit. Amen? That is when our lives bear fruit. True life, not just in heaven, but right now, true life is found when we lay our lives down. That is how we become fully alive. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you modeled this. You not only taught it and led by example, and so we want to do that. If we are going to follow you, we want to take these words to heart. So this week, help us to grow in that exercise of denying self, to putting you first, to putting others first in our relationships. I'm praying for marriages today that are just kind of in the depths of conflict. I'm praying for breakthroughs where both parties would understand your call for one party to prefer the others. And I'm praying for those marriages that that's not happening, and I'm just praying that you would speak to hearts that have been hardened, and you would open blind eyes to the calling that you have. The, the ultimate way for experiencing true life is to lay our lives down for others and to deny ourselves to follow you. So help us in the little things and in the big things this week, each of us who is hearing these words right now, to die to ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow you. And that is the source of true life. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.